Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each week, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. We are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and any other major podcast platform. Please subscribe and like to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. You can always find our latest episodes at thesufferingpodcast.buzzsprout.com. Please comment. We may even read your comments on future podcasts and even reach out to you for a future guest spot. Like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Suffering Podcast. Here you'll see links to episodes, updates, and inside information on how to achieve greatness through the joy of suffering. So get ready, sit down, and strap in. Strap in. We are proud to introduce the Dented Development Project. In conjunction with the Suffering Podcast, the Dented Development Project is a nonprofit 501c3 with a mission. That's to help first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Visit us at DentedDevelopmentProject.com and get involved today. Helping us means that we can take care of those who take care of us. Sit your ass Sit your down. Ass down. Sit your ass Sit down. down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down. down. Sit your ass down. And strap in. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. This is gonna hurt. It's time for the Suffering Podcast. We all need a little relief from time to time. And there's a new product out there that I want you to go check out. It's called Heroes Relief Wine. This wine's gonna benefit four organizations dedicated to relieving the heavy burdens that weigh on our military and first responders' shoulders. These are people who take care of us. It's time we start returning the favor. This wine's gonna benefit Live Free Farm, a veteran-run and owned animal sanctuary dedicated to the healing of invisible scars through animal therapy. 23rd Hour Angels, the healing team is comprised of three beautiful women that rescue military and first responders from the burdens that trauma causes. Dented Development Project and the Suffering Podcast help repair dents caused by suffering in first responders and their families by showing how there is light in the end of the tunnel. So go to oldyorksellers.com and search for Heroes Relief Wine or check our show notes for the link. All new Suffering Podcast gear is here. The show depends heavily on our supporters to get the word out. Let people know that suffering is a team sport and no one is alone in their struggles. Wearing the Suffering Podcast merchandise accomplishes that goal. Check out our store at thesufferingpodcast.com or check our show notes for the link. Your support and love means everything to us. Can a strong body beat a strong mind? Is the pen truly mightier than the sword? On the other hand, no matter how much you want to do a pull-up, the only way to get there is to practice. Rather than contemplate the philosophies of which is stronger, the mind or the body, no scholar will argue the potential dominance of those two aspects of the human experience if they were to combine and team up. 
A strong mind coupled with a strong body makes a powerful combination that can bring your enemies to submission. The mind-body connection is the most powerful of allies that can overcome any obstacle, any tragedy, any suffering. I'm Kevin Donaldson, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we're in the studio with Officer Frank of Reps from Responders to discuss the suffering of Reps for Responders. Frank has shown that the path to a strong mind can be found in the peace that building a strong body can bring you. Frank, thanks so much for driving all this way to come in. I appreciate it. No, no. Thank you so much, Kevin, for having me on and able to share my strength, experience, and hope with you and your listeners and, uh, you know, building that trust in myself and much for responders. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, Frank and I just had a long, lengthy podcast-style discussion about building nonprofits, which we'll get into a little bit later. But he's a guy that I've been uh, I've known for a little, little while, and I've been able to pull resources out of him because he's got a little bit more experience in the nonprofit game. And that's what it is. It's a game. It sure is. <laughs> Before we get into anything, let's get into this week's social media question, and it comes from Robert. Robert writes, who is the person you rely on the most for support for trauma seen or felt as a first responder? Frank, being an officer in New York, you get, I have a tough time speaking to family members about stuff I see on the job when I was working because they just don't understand it. So is there one person that you rely on the most? Oh, that's actually a really, really good question. His name was Robert? Robert, Robert yeah. yeah. See, now my t- my mind has changed tr- you know, tremendously, but going back to my patrol days, it used to be the guys at the bar. The guys right? at the bar, yeah. Jack and uh, Jose. <laughs> was it the comfort of strangers uh, or was it specifically the alcohol well, where you just drown it out? Well, it would, I would say what, it wasn't even also strangers. It was, you know, so I used to work four to twelves. Sometimes four to fours is what they call the shift. Mm-hmm. And um, Because well, you're always held over four hours? At, yeah. After, uh, oh, oh, yeah, oh, I got oh. you. After you, uh, after you hit the bar, got it. Yeah. Got it. So that's uh, a little term that they use, uh, where I work, but, um, it wasn't every, it wasn't, all, it wasn't all the time. Let's say that, but it would be after a night, all the guys get together and you talk about it. The guys had just worked then and you had a few drinks and quotes, a few over it. And you went home, you went on your day and that's it. <clears throat> you left it there. Every time. My significant other was, how's work? The usual, typical, and a lot of first responders say this. It was fine. It was, it was fine. good. So it's, it's, it's funny because if she came out with us sometimes, and of course stories get brought up, after I tell the story, she'll take me aside and be like, well, why don't I know about that? You never told me that. And then my answer would be like, because you don't need to know that. Why would I tell you that? Police are protectors, though. Police try to shield the normal citizen from dangers, from horror, from this is kind of what we do on a normal basis. So it's no big surprise to me that we would do the same thing to our significant others or our family members, try to shield them from the horrors that we see. It's not a very healthy behavior. No, no. Did you ever try it? Did you ever try to go home and, and tell your significant other exactly what happened? Then? No, I. It's funny because I never did as well. How did I know it wouldn't work? I, I never did it. I just assumed that it would never work. So it's kind of foolish that we fall into this trap that they just won't understand. How do you know? Maybe they would. Maybe it would have lightened my load. What, one, of the, one of the best things I've heard <clears throat> in a meeting. So now the answer to that question is 
I have a really great support group, and that comes from the Sunday meetings that we run at Reps for Responders, Responder Talk, where it's an open conversation. We have a topic or a speaker meeting, or sometimes we do a check-in. And that is a safe haven for myself and a lot of guys and girls across the country where we just unload <clears throat> on the week and for work. And what you talk about, 99% of the time, that one of the someone in that meeting has gone through it and able to, and we always say we don't wear the same shoes, but we've walked similar paths. So able to relate in that way and get it off get it off your chest. Going back to before that, someone once said, and I've done it before and she's done it, is listen, you come home or even the next day and you say, listen, I got, I'm going through a lot right now at work. I'm going to tell you what happened, what I saw, what, 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 what I went through, how work was. But I just want you to listen. I don't want you to respond. I just want you to listen. Let me say what I got to say and we'll go from there. That's a good point, too, because I have vented to my wife, and my wife, trying to be supportive, has offered her opinion, and I get mad because I don't want, I don't want your opinion. I just want to get this off of my chest. That's what I need right now. I don't need for you to give me advice. I'm not looking for advice. I just need to undo this armor. For me, when I was working, I kind of fell in the same trap where I didn't have that one person where I could just unload on. Because if you if you unload on somebody inside your department that something you saw throughout the course of your duties bothered you, there's a likelihood that you're going to believe they're going to see you as something weaker. It's very untrue. I think for most part that's very untrue, but that's what we build up and make up in our own heads. I didn't have anybody. And yeah, drinking was... That happened from time to time, but I just bottled it up. That's all I did was just bottle it up, and I put on this armor, and it just got so heavy after a long period of time that after my critical incident, I just broke because I was too heavy. I didn't know how to release anything. Robert, I hope that answers your question a little bit. We kind of went in a, in a roundabout way of getting to there. The, the bottom line is, Robert, is most first responders don't have that rock in which to break themselves up against. We just don't have it. There's an emergence of new organizations such as Reps for Responders. They're out there now to provide these pieces of assistance because there is a genuine need for it. Thank you very much for your question, Robert. Keep sending those questions in. We'll try to get them on the air. Now, Officer Frank, we've had lots of different discussions through different events that we've met at, and I find you an incredibly interesting and intriguing person because... Our concept for the Suffering Podcast has always been you're never alone in your struggles and suffering is the way that you actually achieve everything you want in your life because you have to go through the down times. But I want you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that very much. I want to hear about you. This is the one time we had a long discussion prior to the to the show about oh, pride, man. Oh, man. pride and humility and any type of life of service, the pride and ego can creep up on you. And you try to stay humble, but I'm going to ask you to bring out the prideful portion and just tell everybody about yourself. I grew up in Rockland County, New York. Ended up having a really good family, which is part of it. And But of course, with every good family, every family has their kryptonite. And that's a word we use a lot at Retro Responders. And I didn't really understand what was going on until I got older and went through what I went through. But my mom, my dad, my brother... 
ended up playing high school football, which was really, really a life-changing experience for me. It definitely molded me into the, to the young man I am today. And it goes beyond football. I mean, that's what I'll talk about. It kind of relating to be a police officer. So after that, went to community college. But when I left football, I kind of, I kind of lost myself a little bit. As I got into sophomore year of college, I'm like, I'm missing something. And I was missing that routine, that hard work, that ethic, that schedule, that routine. Like I just said, it was very, very key. You know, I just had this conversation with my son. My son was asking me about his, he was talking about schoolwork. You know, he's real busy, you know, and I, I train him and everything and I run him and I, and he's like, dad, I got a lot going on. And I said, do you understand that when I went to college, the times that I did the best was when I was playing football, working out, schoolwork, and I actually had a job. So my day, plus classes, my day was very full. But when you have a full day, you actually get more accomplished. There's a whole group of people out there to think you have to work to be, you have to work harder to be more productive. And that's the truth. It's, it's filling your day up. It's scheduling everything. It's proper management and organization. So I get that. I understand that. I, I pass that knowledge on to my son, both my kids, actually. Yeah, that's really, really powerful stuff because if you have that routine and you know what you're going to do for the day at least, or even the week is a lot better. Then the time kind of just, to me, goes a little quicker and smoother, and you feel more accomplished doing these little things. Feels good to lay down in bed and go, yeah, this was a full day. I got this yeah, stuff done. Yeah, I got it. I got after it today. I can, I can, I can sleep like uh, restful and everything. You know, my body just falls asleep. I ended up saying, you know what, I'm, 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 I can't give up on football yet. So I worked my butt off for 150 days, sophomore year. No cheat meals. I mean, it was very strict. It was literally, you're, I'm looking at your Rocky poster. And I had a, I had another one in my garage. Um, it was just like, I had to put my mindset of, of in a movie like that and uh, go very extreme. And I didn't drink that much at the time either. There was no drinking. It was no really any cheat meals. It was that strict routine that I ended up falling in love with. So I worked my butt off and then ended up walking on to the SUNY Cortland, which is upstate New York, Division Three, but it's a very big athletic school and uh, played football there for about a year and a half. And then my senior year, I didn't end up going through with it uh, just because I realized that you come on late, maybe special teams, if that, but in the back of my mind during spring training, I saw like two or three guys get hurt, really bad injuries. So if I get hurt doing this, I'll never become a cop. And that was my goal. So I ended up walking away from that and graduated uh, SUNY Cortland with a bachelor's degree in criminology and then that's when I got into powerlifting very heavy, kind of put, try to fill that void for football. And then really, again, went to that extreme. And, you know, sometimes, a lot of the time, going to the extreme and things may be your downfall. So when you, you, you said you got, you got into powerlifting, did you, ever, did you ever do powerlifting competitively? Oh, yeah. Right. After, once I got into that, yeah. But I was lifting hard for about two years before that powerlifting. Now, I know this firsthand, and I want to ask you the same question. The training going up to competition, was that the best training in your life? Because for me, when I train for an event, I just, I, I, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do the triathlon this year, but I was training for Lake Placid Ironman. Oh, wow. And it was awesome. I mean, I loved, I loved the, the training. The suffering. The, yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was great. I felt accomplished. I had a drive. I had a purpose. The minute that was canceled because of COVID, 
I wanted to keep training, not at the same level, but I wanted to keep, I found it very difficult, very, very difficult. And I didn't put my heart into it. What happens when you don't put your heart into something? Tore my Achilles. So I couldn't do the 2021. Mm. You know, and now my hips are all screwed up. All because I just lost that purpose. I work better under purpose. Was it the same for you? I would say definitely. Like, even when the show ends or the competition ended, it's like, all right. That was great, but like, when's the next one so I can build back up to that and work through it? It wasn't the same feeling of training so hard for something that, you know, you're putting in weeks, months, maybe sometimes a year, and then it happens so fast. And then you sit there and you're left there going, all right, now what? And that the first question is like, what can I do in my next training cycle to make it better? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly, that, that's, that's exactly it right there. It's just, we can always learn. But that's also where it comes in a day at a time and just for today, like, if you're so focused on the end results and the end game and you're missing the whole entire what's happening in front of you right now, and it's kind of like the same thing as being a cop. Like if you want to become a sergeant or a lieutenant and then you're just going through the motions just so when you can take the test and you're not really focusing on the patrol game, it's not going to feel the same. So you, you have to know that there it is what you're training for, what you're going for. It's not going to last forever, and that's that's a hard part to to accept. You know, it's the same thing with the job. Like a lot of guys want to get to retirement, but what's the what's the what's the game plan after? What that's, are you going to do after retirement? That's exactly and where a lot I of was people going don't think this. about that. Yeah, that's like, exactly that's where I was going. So, what's the average age of a police officer? Five years after retirement in New Jersey, because we have to do twenty five. It was somewhere between fifty six and fifty nine is where police officers died five years after they Yeah, they, they say retired. right now the average life is 57 to 65. Okay. Why is that? Because you lose your purpose. You lose your purpose. The life of service of a police officer is filled with purpose. And once that's gone, man, you start sleeping later. You just you have no drive to keep yourself healthy. You're going out to eat a little bit more. And it's just a, you become this sedentary life, lifestyle. In my current job now, I have a lot of contact with local police officers, and I've seen many of them retire, and I always tell them, listen, you've earned, take three, two, three months off. You've earned it. Right, exactly. You've earned yeah. it. But have a plan. Have a plan that you're working for, because you are going to lose your mind. I have, have that plan years before, and that's what, we t- that's what I try to have that conversation with, too. Listen, I'm still working on that plan, right? Right. But, Nobody says that's got to be the plan you stick with, because oh, something yeah. might present itself in that time period, but at least you have some direction on where you're going. Exactly. And also that it, that it, that such a, unfortunately it's such a young lifespan is let's work on dealing with the suffering now and our, on our behaviors and our habits right now. So that by the time you retire, the demon, the monster, the minotaur is not waiting for you. And now you're waiting. Now time is going by and all of that, Everything you kind of stuff behind under the bed is slowly starting to come out. You know, just like with with training for a competition or training for any type of event, athletic event, the same goes for police work. You, many officers become so focused on retirement that they miss the good things about the I'm job. I'm in it for the pension and the benefits. You hear it all the time. That's yeah. it. Well, that's bullshit. Right. You know, you and I both know that's bullshit. You're here because this is a this is a purposeful job. This is unlike how many people get to go to work and say to their coworkers, you know what? They make a movie about what I do. They make movies all the time about what I do. And there's very few professions in the world. When's I the agree. last time, uh, other than the Ben Affleck movie, and nothing, no knock on accountants, but when's the last time you've seen a, 
you know, a movie about an accountant, like a true regular accountant, not a not an assassin accountant. There, there's just not many of those professions out there. I, I'm an inspector for construction. Well, haven't seen any of those movies getting made yeah, yet. Unless you're also like, you know, part of the mob at the same time and doing something crazy. <laughs> you got to be multifaceted. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so you've listened to a couple episodes of the Suffering Podcast. We have a lot of mutual friends. We we share in this common bond of of really killing ourselves for nonprofits in order to help our fellow man. I really be interested in your perspective on your thoughts about the Supper- suffering podcast. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. One, it takes a lot of courage to what, you know, what you, t- what you talk about on here and really what is suffering. Right. And then also able to get all different walks of life and different types of first responders from different suffering experiences, because yes, we all do suffer but we all suffer in our different ways. And then how comfortable you, you know, your interviewee is able to express themselves. I think that's very, that's very important, especially in our, in our profession. Imagine like just sending out a letter to a big department and stating, hey, we're looking for five people to talk about their life experience on our show, just five. And like you send out of a hundred, I don't know if you would get five, you know what I mean? But that one person that comes on here can really change one person at a time. And that's really what it is all about with the type of work that you're doing. And like you said, other organizations are trying to do is like, if you can just change, if you can just get one to look at things differently or ask for help or change their perspective, then they live, learn and pass on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And it keeps on, keeps on, keeps on. Honestly. The funny thing is, is, if somebody were to approach me and say, hey, can I, because we get it through, we get it through social media, you and I both. Hey, listen, I'd be perfect for your show. I'd be, per- I'm not so sure that's the person that is right for this, because in order to come in this door, you have to have a certain level of humility and, and your humbleness is the fact that you don't, you're not asking to be put in the spotlight kind of shows your humility. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we look for. And you said it great because I was going to say this, this show, the podcast, it's, it's not about us. It's about the listeners. And Correct. you don't want to people that like, it's funny you, you say that cause it's, it's happened before, but uh, I want to come on uh, just so I can post it and get the likes and share. And, you know, look at me, I made it onto a podcast or something like that. You know what I mean? But it's like, that's not, that's not what it, that's not what this one is about. No. No, it's, it's, it's not an ego driven thing. Right. And, uh, once you remove yourself from that, you find a lot of peace in speaking to these people. And I, I have this group of friends now and I consider them all friends. <laughs> it's, it, we should be a traveling circus. I'm telling you now, we should be a traveling circus of just. That would be a cool idea. Suffering podcast in every state. Maybe oh. make that on your bucket list. <laughs> Franchise it like fight club. Yeah. I've heard you speak many different times and you have a really powerful story. I think the first time I heard you speak was at the moment of silence event that was at the Brownstone. Yeah. I spoke it there. And I really want you to tell our audience your greatest suffering story. Huh? It would definitely come with on how reps started and, uh, surrendering or now we use the word submitting to, you know, something, stronger than myself, which is alcohol. So, you know, September 23rd, 2019 was the last time that I had a drink. (sighs) It wasn't easy to get there, Kevin. It wasn't easy. And it was, it was a close call. I'll say that. But 
beautiful things came out of it. So got on the job in 2015, left the job in 2018 um, to a different department. Got to that department and that's where my true suffering really started kicking in. I was 25 at the time. Um, wow, you got on young. I got on at 23. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I got on at 23, got six years on now, 29. And it's it's 20 and out in New York? Well, now it's 22 and a half. 20. Yeah. <laughs> They're always trying to keep you yeah, longer, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's another story. So I left, I left where I was at, and I went to a different department. And when I got there, that's where I would say my true self really started to kick in, and I was trying to fight it. Um you know this where I was, where I went to was closer to home, a little, a little better pay in quotes. I, yeah. always, I, I say, and you're a lot safer. Uh, but the first thing that came to my head was, am I going to be solo patrol for twenty years? You know, in the hometown where I grew up in, and I just that wouldn't leave my mind. You know, like the song, should I stay or should I go? And the clash, sure. And that was my theme song. And I couldn't get out of my own head. I gotta be honest, right? I put a lot of pressure on myself and started building up. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I would wake up every single day with crazy anxiety that I didn't even know that was possible, right? Because everyone gets anxiety before a big test, a date, a game, maybe a powerlifting meet or something, right? There's no running from anxiety. It's a fight or flight. It's in us. It's a human. It's a, it's a human aspect of life. There's no running from it for anyone listening. It's it's okay to have it. But what I would say is that if you're having it way too often, then something has to be done about it. Because you could live your life like that if you want, but it's going to be, um, there's more to life than living that way. Um, and it's going to be one of the hardest things you've done to to break that, break that barrier. Well, somebody told me once long ago that anxiety is the fear of the future. Depression is the fear of the past. They're missing a very key portion of the equation because there's a past, future, and a present. Yeah. And very few people know how to be present. I myself am super guilty of that. You know, I got to make sure all my, my, my work is done for the week. Otherwise, I'm not comfortable because I'm too worried about what's going on in the future. Well, what about right, what's right in front of me? Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, there's no greater gift than the present, right? That's so, right. Uh, it only comes once. It really does. And um, sometimes... Like you said, we're not, we miss some beautiful things. I firmly believe the answers are right in front of us all the time. Literally right in front of us. We, we miss it. We, we do. And I, you know, I have to raise my right hand too and say I'm guilty. You know, every day I have to try to work on it to stay present and um, not be in that, that auto drive, that, that pilot, you know, that autopilot mode. But that's how I felt going into work a lot. And then one day, man, I'm telling you, it was like out of a freaking movie. I woke up and I just couldn't feel anything. Everything was like black and gray. Obviously it wasn't, but in my mind it was. It was pretty scary. And that lasted for probably about four or five months, man. Just miserable every single day. You know, when is this going to end? When am I going to feel again? And I'm talking about feeling like emotional, feeling happy, which is that plain zombie look. I felt like I could cast for The Walking Dead. Like I couldn't, I could, I could have made that, uh, that episode. Did anybody else notice it or was it, yeah, did, were you able to put on that good face? No. I want that probably like three or four months. I tried to fight it. And then the next four months was everyone knew there was no more hiding from it. And mm. then at that point with the depression was so bad, 
I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Then I, the, the uh, what is it? IDGAF syndrome, you know, mm -hmm. I don't give a syndrome. And uh, you can say it on here. We can say whatever we want. All right, yeah. Like I don't give a fuck syndrome. And um, fuck shit, dick. We yeah. can say whatever we want. <laughs> and uh, all right. So it's not PG-13. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No, as a matter of fact, the fact that you're not cursing is making my audience a little bit uncomfortable. Oh, okay, I'll have to kick it, I'll have to kick it up a notch. Sorry, guys. Fuck. <laughs> it's an odd thing, depressive disorders. And at this time, were you drinking? Oh, man, like a fucking fish. Like a fish. So with drinking and, de drinking and depression are very good bar oh, friends. Man, they love each other. They love each other so much because one feeds off the other one. And it... That's another thing that so many people we come across, and especially first responders, that want to try to better themselves. It's like, and I think it has to start in the education process. I'm talking about like middle school and high school, mm -hmm. not just like one week of class, but I don't understand why there's not just like a mental health class. You know, the health, the, I know you have your health class and stuff, but like really focus on it a lot more because when you cut out the booze, it's, the booze is like, think about it like a steroid for any of you lifters out there or anything, you know, known in general is that it's like a, it's like a Diana bowl or a one stroll. It will, <laughs> it will make your depression and anxiety so much stronger. Yes. And then your mind starts playing games with you saying, I need it. I need it because you know, this is the only way that I can feel anything. And then you get to the point where your mind's lying to you because you're not feeling anything. Well, that's, that's the common thing with, uh, is anybody, have you ever come across cutters? People who like to cut I was going to bring that up, but I didn't want to. And now I understand why people do what they do. Here's the here's the the mentality behind a cutter, is they don't feel anything, so they'll cut their skin yep. because pain is a feeling, and they just want to feel something. And that's and it goes to any addiction. It goes to why people cheat on their spouses, or why porn addiction, or gambling, and things like that, because you just want to feel something and get out of your own head. Mm -hmm. Just for a little bit. And now, you know, it makes perfect sense of, of, of everything that I went through. Ended up for, it was 10 months of just pure torture chamber, I called it. And it was torture chamber that no one else brought upon me. Did you see any doctors at this time? Um, I, I was, I was seeing somebody, but not nothing to like the full extent of what, you know, happened down the road. I'm just wondering if somebody offered a prescription. I'm not a big prescription guy, but something for a little bit of relief yeah so we went down that path a little bit it wasn't let's just say i felt like a lab rat so i went through and it was part of my disease of the alcoholism and stuff the alcohol use disorder they call it now but in the span of like six months man i was on seven different ssris now these are powerful for your people listening these are powerful powerful drugs right they're literally changing the way that we think and releasing serotonin and our neural pathways, right? Lexapro, Cymbalta, right. Kalanapin, I'm sure they gave you for anxiety. Zoloft, Zoloft. Prozac. You take Seraphil a couple of Kalanapin and wash them down. And I'm, I'm strongly suggesting people do not do this, but our, our doctors here would prescribe us Kalanapin. Well, guess what? I was drinking at the time after my incident and some drinks plus Kalanapin intensified the high. I was just about to bring that up. I did. I, so I would take it and I'm like, I don't feel, I felt like that I was drunk. Mm-hmm taking it and I'm like no so I cut it not the right way and then I would be drinking and then I'd be drinking on it be cutting them off I would tell a certain person that I was talking to like you know I can't even remember my freaking computer login to get <laughs> for the for the RMP like it was crazy I felt like I was going stir crazy in my mind 
that was going on. And then I ended up leaving the, leaving that department to go back to this apartment I'm at now. But by that time, I was like a sheet in the wind. I was a shirt hanging on a outside on the shirt line, flopping in the wind. Were you and, working out at the time? Oh no, I lost it all. You lost it all. I lost so it. So yeah. the people perspective, I was like one eighty five, pretty solid one eighty five, powerlifting, um, pretty solid numbers. And then once the anxiety started kicking in, I tried to fight through it. And that word try, and I, I couldn't. And I went from the anxiety was so bad, I went from one eighty five to one sixty five. I looked. Oh, you go the other skinny. way when you don't work out. Very, I looked very skinny. I look, I stopped eating too. That's why. Oh. I would have like two coffees and a shake a day. That was it because I couldn't even force any food down. So then when I went on this medication, I started gaining weight and a lot of water weight, which people don't understand either. Um, and you eat more, but that's more down the road. That's more down the road. So I left and went to the department where I'm at now. And you know, people were like, oh, was it that bad? I was like, nah, it just wasn't for me. But I didn't want to be at work. I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I ended up, you know, my family sat me down multiple times and they were finally like, listen, you need to like get some serious help. So my aunt's a doctor. So I ended up checking myself, you know, voluntarily into New York Presbyterian Hospital. And they're like, all right, you're going through a hard time. Sign this paper here at downtown Manhattan. So I'm like, all right, hopefully get some good help. So then all I remember is leaving there and going to uh, New York Presbyterian in Westchester uh, for six weeks, six weeks. Little did I know that it was a full-blown psych ward. <laughs> we we just had this discussion with our mutual friend, Brad Wadby, because I had been there. Uh, Brad is actually actually in a little worse spot than me because those those psych wards, if you're over six foot, there's nothing that there's nothing they have that fits you. It's you're treated like a dehumanized criminal. It's not a place that I suggest. Those places, if you've ever been in one of those places, that will keep you straight. That will keep you from running in that into that ever again in the future. Yeah, I never want to go back. No, I, I told myself I'm never going back. I don't care what I have to do. Whether it was like I have a, to lie it was to like myself. a mini prison. Oh yeah, it was. No shoelaces, no pencils, no pens. Uh, no I said, oh my gosh, you know, you put people in a psych ward as a cop, you know, now you're in a psych ward, you've arrested people. Uh, when I was younger, I was, I was arrested one time at 16. I'm like, what else have I haven't done in life? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you, you've done, you've, you get the feel and that's the thing. More empathy builds up. You feel it from both uh, spectrums. I was there for about two weeks and you know, got to get out, got to get out. So I got put on a different medication. I was on, um. Now, how did your department react to all this stuff? Oh, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, my PBA rep, no, and then they had to make the notifications. And then, you know, they take your gun and shield away, and then that's it when you come out. Which, by the way, is, you, it, it would be less painful to remove your balls, because that's I was pretty gonna, much Well, what that's what doing. I was going to say, is that's why I fought it for so much. Yeah. I was like, I'm a cop. How can I ask for help and get my gun and shield taken away? Then I'll never become a cop ever again. And that's the problem. That's a lot of the... The hardships we find today with people in the first responder world is getting put put behind a desk, getting your gear, getting your, you know, like you said, your manhood taken away. And then how is anyone ever going to trust you again? All you're doing is, was, all you're doing by putting that stuff off is s delaying the inevitable because it's going to happen. It, you're going to break one of those days. And just by hiding it, it's it's not healthy to do that. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. There's no running from it. 
So w- when did alcohol become, when did you first start with alcohol? At what age? Were you young like everybody else, you know, a couple drinks here and there? Yeah, it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything to the extent where I would probably say once I got to college. Yeah. And I bring that football story up because when I was in my, you know, when I became an officer, it made me feel like I was back on the football field in regards to camaraderie, the hard work, the routine, doing something for a higher purpose, a higher cause, you mm-hmm. know? And that's what it related to me. That's why it felt so normal, that hard work, the craziness, all of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, when I was probably started picking up really heavy-ish, and then, listen, I wasn't an everyday drinker until the towards the end of my depression and that's what you hear a lot I was like oh you know until this but then this happened but i was that binge drinker that would drink for two three days pretty hard and then all right, all right guilt and shame and <laughs> beating the hell out of myself up i don't want to feel like this for two three weeks i'll you know stop and then you know do it again and because like you that. never you never want to go so far that you go over that cliff and say i can never do this again right. that's what i was always fearful of. I never want to be told that I can never do something again. Now, unfortunately, in my life, there's a lot of things that I can never do again because I know what's going to happen. I know the end result. And I'm okay with that. But with alcohol, I never wanted to be told that. So I would hit it heavy for a while and I'd say, you know, it's time for me to back off before somebody says, no, no more, no more. Right. Yeah. Because it's so acceptable for our job. And if you don't do it, then you're going to be like that outcast. And I think that has a has a part in it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, going to church, going going to the watering hole with with the guys, and that's how you build trust and things like that. Um, I'm sorry if I'm letting the cat out of the bag, but too bad. You're currently planning a wedding, and what th- what are the three components to any successful wedding? Band or music, food, and booze. Booze, cocktail hour. Yep. Yeah, and yep. In one of the major life events. One of the main components to have a good wedding is booze. Good retirement party, you're going to see booze. Good Christmas party. Just, yep. Halloween. Right. Every, every aspect. And that's why it's become so acceptable. Because every aspect of modern life has that booze in it. There's this new thing, and you're going to start saying this. Uh, I hope that you're fortunate enough to one day have children. But you're going to see this when you take your kids out trick-or-treating. So parents, especially parents my age, have co-opted a child's holiday into, because let's face it, a lot of parents are very selfish and they're me people. Addicts and alcoholics are me people. Some of the parents are me people and now they walk around the neighborhood. It's like a drinking holiday. They take their oh, kids yeah. out. It's in Well, the- how sick it is is that I, I even thought about that when I was drinking. Yeah. Oh, yeah, when I have a kid and how fun it would be. How fun it would be to go out to, and have some to beer. To dress up and yep. go with them and, and do things like that. or the Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, why not? And I'm looking at this right it's now. Another great way to just say I'm, I'm going to drink. And I say, how can, I, don't, I don't understand it. And I'm trying not to judge people who do it, but let the kids have their holiday. It's for them. We have plenty of stuff for adults. Right. And We've already lived our Halloween. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And we don't have to make everything about us. There, There we get back to that humility thing, you know, dropping your ego. It's not about you. It's about the kids. Right. It's time to start pointing fingers. I agree. Did they ever eventually get your medication correct? Yes, they did. Yes. So, um, two weeks in the psych ward originally got out. I left. (laughs) First thing I said to myself was to Frank, holy shit, Frank, you're worse. 
<laughs> <laughs> and you got to laugh about it now. You have to when you when you when you go through a, a hard time and you and you get better. You know, hopefully, uh, I laugh about it now. And uh, so it's like something out of a movie. A day later, I go back in, and my bunk my bunk mate. When I walk back into the dining hall, I'll call it whatever that you call that. Was he was like, he was eating a bowl of cereal and he dropped his spoon. He goes, "Holy shit, Frank! What are they doing to you?" He's like, "How'd you come back in here? You made it out, man!" And he's like, "Oh man, here we go again." I went back in, and then I finally told him, "Listen, you know, I'm drinking and things like that." I'm like, "Oh, why didn't you tell us in the first place?" And I was like, "Ah, I don't know." And didn't feel like I have to. But you hear a lot, so I remember they gave me the big book and everything. So I did another two weeks on the top floor. And then they put me into two weeks of a bottom inpatient facility there. So now a great statistic for people that are trying to deal with significant others that are tr- attempting to get s- sober is that it takes three and 3.5 rehabs for the average to get it right in the first 90 days. 3.5. So to perspective, it's the hardest thing that I ever did in my life. And, you know. It, well, you did you have to physically detox? When you were in there? I was never in like a detox center, no. Because I, I... But I've been through the withdrawals of kind of just fighting through it. One of the facilities that I was in, I actually watched. And this is how I knew my alcohol... This is your perspective, right? right. I knew my alcohol problem wasn't like full-blown alcoholism. Because I watched somebody go through detox. Whoa. I mean, bleeding out. Alcohol through your pores. They're sick as a dog. Wow, man, this this is this is some next level stuff. You can seizuring, so it's not funny, but the only I would say it's funny to say, but the only drug that a human can die from is alcohol withdrawals. The only the only withdrawal, yes, is alcohol. You can't heroin, crack, cocaine. I didn't know that. Yep, and that's people. A lot of people don't know that is that if you are in withdrawals from alcohol and you don't get some serious help, you could possibly die it, it's a it's a possibility see they just stink so much the heroin and all that stuff but that's why people keep using it because they don't want to go through the withdrawals but the alcohol is the only drug you could die from withdrawals now on withdrawals since you're a lot more well-versed than i am i know on heroin they got like suboxone which will be a blocker yeah and it helps out with the with it blocks the withdrawals i believe uh, it's why it's such a sought-after drug. But what they're finding out is people just stay on Suboxone. Get addicted to that. Yeah, they get addicted to that. Is there anything like that for alcohol? Not really to my knowledge. I know there's pills. I can't remember off my name because they gave it to me. But I was like, I don't really need this. There's, there's a few pills out there that try to help you to stop the cravings. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of just being monitored, uh, really heavy fluids. And uh, make sure you don't have a seizure, which is happens and people hit their head or seizure out and... And, you know, the brain kind of, you don't want to go brain dead. But, um, yeah, there, there are pills out there, and then hopefully it comes to me. But there's one pill out there that basically tells the brain to stop the craving for the alcohol. So, for me, I kind of just thought it was a placebo, but this is my personal experience, you know. And, again, if someone is drinking on SSRIs or any other medication, my advice is to not cut those out cold turkey. Well, there's do not there- Do not drink on any of that at all like we talked about that just you know with ssris i know if there is the danger of stopping them to fall so deep in depression that where suicide is an actual yeah actual outcome well that's the first time i ever had a suicidal ideation was when i started taking that medication and would tell you know someone that i was talking to um about that to the point where you know i just wake up and say hold on you know 
I hope that I, uh, you know, don't want to do this anymore. I was like, you just like pray. I hope like someone hits me or I crash my car into a tree, like some really sick thinking that you don't even think that is possible at that young of an age. Cause the first thought was like, before it all happened, like, how could anyone be so depressed? You know what I mean? Like life is great. This isn't that, but I was using the right tools at the time as in working out and eating healthy. But that booze was still always there and it was building up. It was doing push-ups in the parking lot, getting stronger and stronger. And it was in my back vacuum mirror and uh, it became stronger than anything that I ever experienced in my life. So, yeah. So you get out of the hospital. Your family confronts you and say, hey, you need some help. So they're aware of the issue. Right. So they said that before the hospital. They said it before the hospital, right. I, so I got out after that little mini inpatient one mm-hmm. and learned more about it. It was, it was, it was okay. But it was two weeks but it was like with some people that are really sick. Like right. even, even the psych ward, we're talking people with schizophrenia, yeah. psychosis, and you can't make this up. <laughs> Everyone's got a psych ward story, right? Oh, I got, I got a so couple. Got it, a couple. It was just like an L-shaped hall with a bunch of rooms, like a cafeteria and like a little lounge, whatever. But it was like a jail. You had your medication time. You had your phone call time. I'm talking, we went out twice a week for 30 minutes a day to play basketball. The, the, the windows are barred. So there's a girl in there and she had like a shaved head and she was like, listen, you know, you got to be careful on what you say. And I was like, all right, why? I didn't know her at the time. And she's like, you know, they're listening. And now kind of starts to hit me. You know, there's a camera in my eye, you know, and they're listening to everything I say, you know, the Russians. And listen, she was actually a very intelligent girl, but she would say things. I was like, wow, this is, these people are really need a lot of help. So one time in the hallway, I'm looking. I'm not even kidding for about an hour. She had a book on her head and she was balancing it, walking up and down the hallway. And I said, holy shit, Frank, what are you doing here? (laughs) The only thing that it was doing, was like you said, it was keeping you safe. There's nowhere to go. But it wasn't actual help. The doctors come. They talk to you for 10 minutes, literally. 23 hours and 15 minutes a day in there. Just thinking, thinking, thinking. I, I saw it as more of a test to see how much I can take before I really break. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. how I looked at it. They're evaluating me. And if I don't harm myself or somebody else, eh, maybe we'll just let you out. That's that's really it. Because yeah. there's people waiting to get in there, money. Every time someone comes in, that's more money. Anyway, went through that, got out, uh, did an outpatient for a little bit. And I was, again, I had to meet with the, with the job psychologist and X, Y, and Z. And I was going to this outpatient uh, facility. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, this is not helping at all. So finally... After a month or maybe even like three weeks, like I need some serious help. And my family and I looked up this place called High Watch Recovery Center in Kent, Connecticut, and told the job I want to go here. And um, ended up going there from February of 2019 to April of 2019. So for about 40 to 42 days, I think it was about six weeks, I went there. Got out there, went back behind the desk. And then got sent to your desk, desk work as far as desk duty at work. Yeah. At work. Yes. Went to a different unit. And then once a month, you know, you see a, uh, you see the department, um, psychologist. And then I was also doing my own, um, therapy on the side. When I got out though, you know, Kevin, my thought process was I was sober for a little bit and I said, all right, you know, I'll only drink at Yankee games. I'll drink at the Jersey shore. I'll drink when people don't know who I am. Right. You're real great at yeah. justifying what you're doing. And that's the whole the funny logic of it, man. Cause when you hear people think it's like, don't worry, like I've been there before, but it's so true at the time, 
my fiance, who you brought up the wedding, we ended up going on like a 10th month break. And that really destroyed it even more when I was going through my major depressive disorder. Another thing for people listening, don't move in. Don't move in with your significant other thinking it's going to help out because I did that. Married couples really- do it all the time. They have babies when they're in trouble. <laughs> and I was in a really bad place and it made it way, way worse. Um, you know, when I was in depression. I wasn't taking care of the house. Didn't have even ca- no cable. My off days, I would call it sick a lot when I could. My off days, couldn't even get out of bed. It was a, it was a battle just to leave the house, brush my teeth. Like it was, I would, I would take like two or three baths a day. Just like, I didn't know what to do with myself. I couldn't, I got rid of all my social media. Couldn't leave the house because I didn't want anyone to see me. So anyway, going back to the rehab, got out. She came back into my life around August of 2019. And I would put some days together, then drink again, put some days together. And then finally we just had, you know, the spiritual awakening or the time where I said enough is enough. We got a dog, a dog park. She's like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, this was, like, the first time someone really was, like, asked me, like, why are you, like, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Like, don't bullshit me. Like, and I had to sit there for, like, a, like a few minutes. And she said, you know, you have your job. You already went through hell and back. Like, you're going to, you're going to give this all up. You, you went through, like, a re- you know, we went through the hardest part, but you're going to, you're going to bring yourself back to that. And then, you know, I probably won't be here. You'll lose your job. Somewhere I, along the line, what it sounds like to me, just playing armchair therapist, is you felt almost unworthy for all the good stuff that's happening. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. It was like, I don't deserve this. Yeah. You know? I don't, I don't, and, you know, my thought process was too, I made two departments that I wanted to make. I had some really solid lifting numbers. That's how much lifting, you know, means to me, working out, you know, beautiful girlfriend. Like, So you know, when you what? got out of inpatient, you went back into the gym? Actually, when I went to the rehab, yeah, and they did have a gym in there. So I would go once or twice a week minimum. So it did help a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I also, so going back to that weight problem, that weight issue, when I started taking the medication and eating, I went from 165 to 215. Nice. I've never been over 200 pounds <laughs> in my life trying to get to 200 pounds working out and I couldn't Welcome do it. to the club. I haven't been under 200 pounds since I was like 13 years old. So that was another big thing is the 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 weight gain and the transformation on your physical body and but that melts course, in with your mental state too exactly 100%. so you when you look better when you look at yourself in the mirror and you look you you see positive changes you feel better not to mention going to the gym and recent it releases endorphins it releases dopamine, dopamine, yep. yeah. It, it, it the, the, nat- the natural SSRI. The things that you've been searching for through alcohol and other people's third, and I think that's why. Sorry to cut you off, but I think that's why the rock bottom for me pushed back a little bit longer because I was really hitting the gym really hard and had that routine in the and the nutrition. I don't know how if I didn't have that before. Oh, it would have been a lot earlier. Like I, it still kind of boggles my mind how, and I know time. You hear it all the time. I don't have enough time, which I think that's absolute bullshit. But how much people don't understand how much it it, it helps. Well, I watch your videos all the time of of forget what the I forget in the strongman competitions what it's called, but you're carrying stuff. It's just the carry, I guess. Yeah, like a farmer's carry. Farmer's or, carry. Or, farmer's yeah, carry. That's yeah. what I was looking for. The thing I see with you is you're an addict, bro. Oh, hands down. And you're always going to be an addict. It's filling because this is this is how what worked for me. This is what worked for me. I'm an addict. I needed to accept that I'm an addict and fill my addiction somewhere else 
through exercise, running, podcast, nonprofit. So as long as you accept that you're an addict, and you're always going to be an addict, and that's okay. You just have to find positive, healthy forms of to release that addictive outlet. Does that make any sense to you? Absolutely, man. I mean, I just started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu three months ago. I, that's, Hard. That's one. And of I started things. it in February, and something happened, and I had to take off the mat for a few months. But now I'm in it, and it's like there's so much to learn, and it's like so like you're like a kid again in the candy store. What do I pick from? And it's like my mind is like tunnel vision in this now. And I, I want to get involved. I've got so many friends involved in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's great. It's great. And I want to get involved so bad. I want to get my kids involved in it because of the discipline. Here's my problem. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and mixed martial arts in general. Here's my take on it. It's like two men who, who are going to go have sex and one of them decides that they're not gay. So they fight to get, a, get each other off them. <laughs> not, to, not that I'm homophobic or anything, but I, you know, I'm just not into that. But if, from a discipline standpoint, I see the value of it. Being that type of person that, hey, I could choke you out in a couple minutes, it's, it's mental confidence. That's all that is, is mental confidence. Because people who, by far, this is the truth, far and large, this is the pr- truth. People who do mixed martial arts, either whether it's some, whatever form of martial arts, they are the least hazardous, physically threatening people you'll ever meet in your life, the calmest people, and the people that you have to be less worried about, where you go to a bar and you got that asshole who's, yep. who, who, that's the guy you got to be worried muscles, about. Yeah. yeah, that's the guy you got to be worried about because he, you on any given day, somebody lands a punch on you in the wrong place, oh, they're going to kill a- anyone you. Anyone can knock out anybody. Anybody can knock out anybody. Yeah. The people who know how to fight very rarely use it because they're taught other tools besides fighting and knowing that they always have that in their holster ready to pull out at any right. time or even yeah or even verbal jiu-jitsu which a lot of cops should be using verbal jiu-jitsu and re- and regular jiu-jitsu because also you're trained to me you're training for life every time for the gym or anything that happens especially as a as a cop you're training for that one moment that but the thing about the difference between this and the competition is you know when the competition is going to happen when you're training and you got to call that back up and you, you you have to you have to call for help you don't know when that's going to happen that's where you want to keep training because that one time it happens and you make it out alive and hopefully everyone else is alive civilian and, and your coworkers you can say to yourself with that clarity and that that deep breath out this is why i've been working so hard for this very moment but right. the part of the game is that we don't know when it's going to happen what i'm seeing throughout your life is you go through this really really dark time you go from a guy who was very tied into his the, the benefits of fitness, and benefits of fitness far are beyond physical. They're mental. They're, they're equally as mental. You fall down where you fall into your deep, dark place, and then as you're starting to climb out of that hole, you're climbing hard. You rediscover these the benefits of physical fitness. At what point did you say that this is – the sustainability that's going to carry me to the next level of my life for your own mental health. I always knew it was helping my mental state in the beginning before that, because of the confidence that you said, and that confidence didn't build in the gym it built everywhere in my life. And then the little battles in my head, I would have about certain things. I always knew it was there, but now for a fact, I know that it's there because now there's no better feeling really after finishing a hard workout. And then also keeps you, you know, you're at one bar, as in the barbell, aka, keeps you away from the other bar. Yes. 
and working out with a like-minded individuals and a great group of men or even females and everything, right? Really, you're doing it together. Well, you're also starting to look at it things from a different perspective because if you're a gym guy and you know you got a you got a tough workout plan for tomorrow, you're not going to want to go and screw around at night because you want to feel your best. Oh, absolutely. You want to feel your best in the morning. But what you're actually doing now is you're creating a blueprint for reps for responders. Frank has started this wonderful organization. Talk about it a little bit. And I ha- I get a feeling you've already talked about it in your journey. <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course. Thank you. It really all started from that day too, September 23rd, 2019. Let's go back to that spiritual awakening on the dog bench, right? And after that deep breath and having a great conversation, I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. So I just dove in like what an addict does, started hitting meetings, AA, really started opening up my mind and just saying, you know what? I don't want to fight this anymore. Let's just go. Let's just see what happens. Let's put in the work. And then at the same time, uh, my, my father, volunteer firefighter for 40 years, my uncle FDNY, engine 47, he had to retire because of 9-11. Both of my great-grandparents were NYPD, so it runs in the family. My father was going through a hard time. He had alcoholic acidosis in 2019. As people, uh, people are listening, don't know what that means. It means you're literally your organs are shutting down because of so much alcohol abuse over the years. They're not functioning properly. Like you're very close to just death. And I think alcohol use disorder and abusing alcohol is one of the most painful ways of um, losing your life to suicide. It's a slow suicide if you think about it. Yeah, because it's avoidable. And that's what we talk about is that, you know, you hear, oh, he drank himself to death. I would classify that as a suicide. Yes, yes. Physically and, of course, mentally. It's kind of getting, kind of like that getting run over by a steamroller. Yeah. Where you see it coming, you see it coming, and it's so easy to get out of the way, but you can't get out of the way. You can't do it, yeah. So, yeah, he was there. It was the day before Thanksgiving of 2019. Finally talked him into going into an inpatient facility, and I said to him, and this was just a cop in me, I made, you know, I had to push, I had to bend the bar a little bit. You know what I mean? I had to hit him with a few little, uh, this could happen, you know, pull the cop out of me. And I said to him, listen, dad, I'm always going to be there for you because I understand it. I'm, I'm close to like 90 days or I hit over 60 days at this point. But mom and Chris, my, my younger brother, they might not always be there. They're very this close of just walking away, you know, because he also, not only did he have the booze, he had uh, he had two traumatic leg injuries. He snapped his tibia and fibula, and he had two plates and uh, fourteen screws in one foot. And then he broke his other ankle in thirty-two pieces. One from Whoa. the firehouse and one for, from his job. He worked for the highway. I always say he had the knife and the gun going in his chest. What just which one was going to go first? You have two. He's like, I'm going to go to outpatient. I'm going to go to outpatient after he got out of the hospital one day. And I said, Listen, you need more than that. You. Either go to the farm, that's what we call it in New York, go to the farm, it's an inpatient, or I'll go to the town court and I'll, and I'll say that, you know, you're in danger to yourself and others because, you know, you, you can't lie that you do drink and drive sometimes and you're depressed and you don't want to hurt anybody else or yourself. And that right there, I just made that up on the spot. You know, I know about the mental health warrant, but it's a little harder to get to mandate someone to go to inpatient or substance abuse and he goes to me all right fine i'll go because he didn't want right kevin he didn't want anyone else to know that he was mandated to go to rehab <laughs> that's a nice trick because he grew thank you he, that's a good he, trick. 
he grew up in the in the you know where we li- where we live, and everyone knows him. So that embarrassment, that shame of people knowing. So the day before Thanksgiving, fucking van came, and where'd he go? High Watch Recovery Center, where I just got out of. And like I said, I've been sober since September 23rd, 2019. And he's been sober since the day before Thanksgiving in 2019. So I said, holy shit, man, something works. I hate to say this, but man, <laughs> that be, might be one of the best bonding stories between a father and a son ever. And I was saying before, I don't know if we said it on the air already. We talked about so many good things is that when I went through a hard time, I didn't see it. If you would have told me, dude, when I was in my inpatient and it was like a little movie. Like when I first got there for the first two weeks, didn't say anything miserable. Couldn't even like talk because I was just trying to like, just get my, find out, ground myself. And then I started slowly talking to meetings and saying some really good things. I was always there, but I was just so uncomfortable to say it. I know that I had a hard time with the, you know, the job differences and leaving, but like, I wouldn't trade that in any, anything in the world because no matter at the end of the day right now, just for today, you know, we're both sober. And his life was safe from it. He wouldn't have, there was no way, dude, he would be here if he kept drinking. But that's absolutely a, no way. That's a beautiful thing too, because if you look back and I bet you while you were in your, your, your worst place, you, you would have changed what you've done. You, you listen, you give me, a, give me a second chance. I'll change it. I'll change it. Looking back on it now from where you are now to where you were. Cause I've, I've again, I've seen you speak, you go out and you, you give these speeches, you have reps for responders, you have a beautiful fiance, you have a lot of things, which I'm sure wouldn't be here unless you went through your own pain and suffering. Absolutely. And that's the beauty and our concept of our show. Where you are now is because of those, that, that work, just like when you go in there and you got nine reps, you want to get 10 reps, you, you just push out that 10th rep and it's so hard and you need a little bit of help and there's other people around encouraging you and maybe somebody's somebody's spotting you a little bit giving you a little tap on the bar but ultimately that 10th rep that's going to be the difference between victory and failure absolutely and that's what you've done so reps for responders let's let's hear let's hear what you're all about so that happened real quick and then i said wow you know if i can do it and he can do it anybody really could do it if they want to if they want to put in the work you have to put in the work and it's going to be the fucking hardest work you've ever put in in your life so it was still 2019 what i started doing was research on just first responder mental health addiction suicide rates and at the same time in 2019 nypd had 10 active members of service lose their life to suicide and two guys that just retired lose their life to suicide i said wow you've been hanging around blue magazine moment of silence too long because you got the terminology down they don't commit suicide. They they are lost. Oh, I tell you, I've been saying that since day one. Yeah, listen, so, Artie, Artie Dell changed my vocabulary on that one. Yeah, I've uh, we'll have to talk talk with him and see who came up with that first. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't care. I, I don't care who stole it from, but like everybody else. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's the right. It's a great. It's not the. It's the right way to say it. Is that yeah. you did lose your life to suicide, and it's it, it just that word stigma. What I don't like, it just destigmatizes the the way that. A person loses their life. And I said, geez, something is really going on. And when I was going through some different things, I said, all right, something else has to be done. But I knew how much fitness and nutrition really did help my recovery and just help my self-confidence and just my everyday life lifestyle. I said, all right, now that I'm like 90, over 100 days sober, and my dad is working a program, 
what could I do that no one ever has to go into a psych ward and talk to someone that says they have a camera in their eye? But, that, you know, I'm really joking here, but not really saying, what do I have to do that no one ever has to go through what I went through? Because it was so, it was hell. It was painful every single day for a little over a year. And that's a year. I could say that's a year of my life that I lost, but I didn't really lose because I learned so much more at the end. But Don't change that year for anything, man. No, you can't. You can't at all. But what could I do that you don't have to get into that rock bottom where you have to go and get that help? Or sometimes you don't get that help and you become a statistic. And that's what I say. I refuse to be a statistic. That's my little motto. Every single day I wake up, I say, I refuse to be a statistic to drinking. And I refuse to be a statistic to this job. Right? I don't. We're tra- I'm training for, I don't want to be that average 57 to 65 year old that loses their life. Well, you got you to gotta take away the romantic uh, view of both police work and alcohol. Look at any Frank Sinatra movie. It's cool, man. They got they got their whiskey over the rocks. It's oh, yeah. cool. A cigarette in the hand. pack, baby, yeah. That's cool, man. Or you, you, police. Hey, we're running and gunning. We're going, you know, we're, uh, what's the two from the the Rock and Samuel Jackson and the other guys? You know, we're. Oh, yeah. You know what oh, I'm talking okay. about. And they're running down the and street. They make it out. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're the coolest cops on the block. Well, those are two myths about alcohol and police work. Absolutely. And there's tons of them out there. So you're breaking that stigma, the physical fitness portion of it. Right. That's something I got really tied into because after my critical incident, I was, I, I was running. I was a big runner at that point. And after my critical incident, I ran for a little bit, but uh, you know, it was, it was like pulling teeth for me. I didn't want to do it. I just did it out of habit. And one day I just stopped. I just stopped doing it, lost it. And I didn't pick up running again for like two years. So I, didn't pick hard going to get back into. I didn't go to the gym. I didn't do anything. And then one day I just, I went out for a run with my son and I was like, wow, that, that felt pretty good. And then you start to remember, Yeah, you start to remember what that feeling was. And so once I got back into physical fitness, my life changed for the better exponentially. And I think that's what's happened with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was. So, yeah. So going going into that, I said, what could I do to help? So X, Y, and Z, no one has to go through that and lose their life. So I said, all right. Came up with the word, you know, the name Rep for Responders, made sure I looked it up on social media everywhere, made sure no one had it. And I said, all right, going to open up a free gym where I live for first responders and military free gym, you know, just to lift for free and see, let people know really how much I can help them. So the gym was an illusion to bring guys and girls in, but it was really to meet other first responders from other departments. So now you can build a report with them and some friendship and say, Hey, we'll work out together and meet for a cup of coffee before, after and share. Cause if I'm a cop in New York, I might not feel comfortable talking to another cop where I work, but maybe another part of New York or maybe like an EMS worker or, or a firefighter. You know, now I can let things out a little bit so I don't have to hold it in and let the minotaur or the monster in me take over and destroy me. But the gym was the illusion. So that, and we can have in-person meetings just to talk, not AA, but just have a talk about really what we're going through at work and life. Did some research, didn't know what I was doing at the time put some money down quick on the nonprofit. I had no idea what it entails. I had to do all that work. They approved the nonprofit in December or Jan, like December 19, close to January, 2020. We got to do a whole show on the suffering of nonprofits. (laughs) A whole show of it. Oh yeah. (laughs) Big time. It's a, it's a, it's a big, you're trying to do this great thing. Again, another thing you can't do alone. 
Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. You're trying to do this great thing where you're 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 giving back and you're trying to teach people people the lessons of your own bad beats from the things that you've done wrong to make sure it doesn't perpetuate and happen again to offer some support for somebody in need. And what do you get? Mountains of paperwork, tons of phone calls. I don't know who you did yours to. I did mine through a, a service. It was the we're not rich guys, you know. Yeah. I can't afford to hire a high price right. attorney. So you know, mountains of paperwork. You can do it all yourself. It's not fun, but you certainly can do it all yourself. Man, that's that's. I feel that pain. I yeah, I used a service. I used a service too. I had no idea what I was doing, and uh, some bumps in the road where I'm like, oh, I should have known better, but you didn't know. And you have to accept anything you go through, and and you do it. You know, let's say you do it wrong and not the best you can, but do you ask yourself, did you really not know? You know, and say it's okay because you, you had no idea, but now you know. March of 2020. I made the mission on GoFundMe. It raised a decent amount of money quick. And then I put a lot of my own money into it. Mm -hmm. And then March of 2020, also something else happened. So I opened up the gym for 10 days. And then the gym closed for good because of COVID. I said, oh, you got to be kidding me. It was rough, but that end goal, that competition of now this competition is forever because you you never want to have anyone lose their life to suicide, it's always going to be there. That's what they we're training for, ultimately. And um, But all that gym lockdown was, was just one more obstacle, telling you why you need to do what you do. Oh, yeah. And for me, I hated the fact that the gyms were locked down, but I refused to use that as my excuse. And I know a lot of people did use it as an excuse. And that's all it was, because the weather was beautiful. Oh, it was great. You could go out and do whatever you want to do. You're you're getting vitamin D, which was uh, vitamin D helps your immune system, which guards against COVID. The fact that some people just use that to stay inside, get fat, and eat McDonald's. <laughs> and now you're now you're in that cycle of it's very hard to get out, and yeah. more people lost their lives to you know drug overdoses and substance abuse during the lockdown than actual COVID itself. Well, the number the number one thing that puts you the number one pre-existing condition that puts you in the hospital statistically was obesity. Now you saw restaurants, you saw gyms and this is this kind of ticked me off. You saw gyms get closed down, the one place where you could go to get healthier. But did you ever see McDonald's, Wendy's, Kentucky Fried Chicken? Did you ever see them closed down? No. No. And Without being a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, I know it has a lot to do with money and safety and things like that. But the gym, the gym has a couple different uses. It's it's place where you actually go and build up your immune system and guard against this horrible thing. And there's a sense of community, which we have all lost in the past 19 months or whatever, however long this thing's been going on. So yeah, it's, it's sad. It's it's a sad thing. Agreed. So you you're up and running and... You've had you've had some successes. I know you've had. I follow you very closely. You've had a lot of different successes. You've impacted a lot of different lives. Well, thank you. If you've had a crystal ball, where do you want to bring reps for responders? I mean, that's a great that's a great question. And of course, I thought about it. And it's kind of what you talked about the nonprofit is like you want it to be great because you want it to be big so you can help out so many people. But at the same time, it's not like we have. It's not like as a nonprofit too. You have monthly money coming in left and right. So you have to work your butt off to fundraise. We're not we, the Wounded Warrior Project. We're not the Gary Sinise Foundation. Right. Well, you have all money being put into already. And then you <clears throat> you were like one of the first ones. So everyone knows who you are and, and things like that. And, you know, those are great, great foundations. But honestly, the way that it's going, I wouldn't change anything because 
the people, the smaller it is, the more people get use out of it and able to really have an impact where they want to stay along, you know? So of course, when we have more money and hopefully grants get involved, you know, you can explore more. So now what we do is instead of having a gym, we'll sponsor guys and girls at different fitness facilities, um, you know, mainly in Rockland County. And we've done other places too. And we'll pay for your first two, three months of either CrossFit, strength conditioning, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. CrossFit? Whoa, hang on, stop. CrossFit? You got to come down here to New Jersey because CrossFit is super expensive. I don't feel like paying for those monthly they're fees. They're all expensive. So, yeah. Oh, geez, CrossFit's crazy. Yeah, so we've we've done all we've we've done we've done all of that, and we'll pay for your first two three months. And all we ask are all we ask is you make it eight times a month. That comes out to twice mm-hmm. a week. If you do that, we'll pay for your month too. That's nice that you put that criteria on there. Yeah, because we you live and you learn. We've done that where people have crushed on month one, and then month two comes and they make it once or twice, and then we already pay it up front, and we you know unfortunately we lose money, and that could have been a sponsorship for somebody else. You have to remember, people are going through a lot of things, and it goes back to, oh, this feels so good right now. Let's do it. And then you realize it's not the right time. Timing is everything. There's there's a lot of freedom into the way, because your nonprofit, although it's, it's, bigger than, it's bigger than our nonprofit, and I'm, this is not a dick measuring contest, but the beauty in the nonprofit's where, world that you and I sit in is, let's say, the next two months you receive no extra funding coming in. Well, it sucks that you're not able to send that out the back, but you're still there. You're still surviving because I, th- I believe I understand this, right? You really don't have all that overhead. Well, now, now that the gym closed and all that idea was a good learning experience because I don't have an overhead now. I can mm-hmm. say, all right, this month we could do X amount of sponsorships. Yes. We actually stopped posting about it as much and people are reaching out to us on the side and the people that actually reach out that want the help. That's where a lot of our money is going to. I'd rather have the people reach out and help them with our different services than saying, oh, we have this sponsorship here. And then people are like, oh, free gym or free whatever. This sounds great. But people that actually need the help and mm-hmm. want it, they'll reach out. So again, it's not just for anyone struggling for substance abuse. The program is for anybody that just wants to better themselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You know, we have a nutrition nutrition and health and wellness coach. We run the meeting every Sunday night, Responder Talk, which is open to any first responder and military, active or retired. We've had check-ins from 15 different states across the country, and we just have topics, speaker meetings, check-ins, and it's way more than substance abuse. You know, we define recovery as not just recovery from substance abuse, but you can be in recovery from depression, gambling, uh, relationship difficulties, and so on. And, you know, somebody in that group has gone through what you went through. And then we, we do a resiliency skills training class where we have two mental health professionals that we work with, and they'll take two first responders at a time, and they'll do a four-week course of, you know, one week for an hour, staying grounded, coping skills, really mm-hmm. what is substance abuse. So just little tools to be aware. So we just wrapped up one of those courses. But yeah, this year, we've done like 25 gym memberships, two to three months at a time, you know, oh, close to 50 resiliency skills training classes. And, you know, if people really need some more help, we'll hook them up with a mental health professional that we know that will be able to compensate for the first few sessions. So they can see if they, they this is something for them and they don't have to go in through insurance and then either figure out another mental health professional that would be uh, right for them, you know? So that's kind of our services in a nutshell. And again, you know, the main one for free is, which I think is the most important one, is the responder talk every Sunday night. Because now you're coming in, meeting people, first responders, maybe where you live, close to it or all over the country, and you're able to now have some good support network and connect. And then the money we fundraise goes to the the fitness, some of the mental health and the uh, nutrition sponsorships. 
So how will we find reps for responders? I know you have social media presence. Right. Uh, what what about any websites or? Uh, yeah. No. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, Repsforresponders.org. Uh, Instagram reps underscore four underscore responders and then reps for responders at gmail.com. Rep- so what we'll do is we'll put a link to all those in our show notes uh, so people can reach out and support your organization because we need people like you out there. We need organizations that are that are dealing with mental health in a very guerrilla tactic way. You're not hitting, you are, but you're you're hitting mental health from the back door. You're breaching the back door. Because what people don't realize is through a stronger body, you you get a stronger mind and more resilient mind. And the hope is there, the hope for getting better. You know, thank you. Yes. What, what you're doing now is you're, you're, you're leaving the world a better place than you found it. And ultimately, isn't that the goal of everybody? Trying to do the best we can. I, I think that's what, you know, we don't live, Frank doesn't have Frank Island. There's 7 billion people on the planet for a reason. I mm-hmm. think that's, we have to open up our minds and say, this is not, life is not just about Frank, right? It's not just about No, Kevin. we all need each other. Exactly. A hundred percent. You don't have, unless you're in like a really, really small department, but in the bigger cities and stuff, you don't have, you know, three guys doing every single call. That's why you have a backup. That's why you call for backup when shit hits the fan, mm-hmm. because you need to do it together. You can't do it by yourself. And that's really what it comes down to. And you're, you're talking about that. It's just like more of a spiritual look at it is what is there's a great study. It says 25 to 30 minutes a day can help any type of physical activity, kettlebells, swimming, running, anything can help fight depression by 25%. That is huge. And that is from American anxiety, um, um, dot org, the, uh, their main website. And that is huge. So I'm taking that every single day and people don't really understand that the food that we eat can either help fight that, that depression, anxiety, or help cause it to get stronger and stronger and stronger and it's just like a little bit of knowledge and just a little grounded decisions throughout the day could really change an impact on the road we're coming to the end of this thing now and i always like to ask this question of every one of our guests you've gone through some real shit you've come out on the other side i'd like to know what all this suffering has taught you well, one, it, it's taught you no matter what happens in your life that you hear it a lot. It's so cliche is that you're, you're going to be okay if, if you let it, you know, and nothing lasts forever. The job doesn't last forever. Relationships don't last forever. You don't last forever. That also means that suffering doesn't have to last forever. So that is something that is, uh, is very important and, you know, Suffering is just part of life. It's uh, the way when we were born, you know, we start suffering. So, you know, one of my favorite quotes, if you're a big Star Wars fan, is fear leads to the dark side. Fear <laughs> leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. So let's try to catch that at the fear level and talk about it and open it. But it's okay to suffer because it's it's part of life. Like I talked about in the beginning, if you're suffering so long, there's a few options. You either quit, which is, if you just look at that word quit, there might not be a coming back from anything. Submit and surrender. I'm saying it's okay. I lost this battle, but let's make a, a tactical battle plan, retreat, and say, all right, next time I'm going to do this, I'm not going to suffer as hard because we're always going to suffer. 
rather than quit, just make that tactical retreat. Quits a f- happens to everybody. Quits the worst four letter word in the English language. Yep. Well, Frank, thank you so much for coming in today. This has been an eye-opening experience, very educational and very inspiring. Your story is is out there to bring people out of the spot that you came from. Thanks again for stopping in. Thank you. We'll be in contact. Trust me, we're always going to see each other at the next event. No, thanks for having me. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast. So let's think about all the stuff that we learned today. Don't get run over by the slow-moving steamroller. Be humble. Drop your ego. Leave the world a better place than you found it. But most importantly, nothing lasts forever, including suffering. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast, the suffering of reps for responders with Officer Frank. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Suffering Podcast.